Um, and this actually has nothing to do with the sermon today. It just has to do with this guy. Uh, there's a guy named Keith Hefley, and he's an Evansville guy. He, um, he's a retired Presbyterian pastor, but I don't know that he ever pastored a church in Evansville. Uh, he was in charge of the Barn Abbey for a while, and then he was in charge of Barnabas Ministries. And he has written his second book, and it's called The Hesed Factor, and you can buy it at the Vineyard. And uh, we have him, had him over for dinner last night, and they just they sold 40 books in the first week that it came out, and they had to get they had to go get another 40 from his stash of all the boxes of books that he had printed, and put them back on the shelf at the vineyard. So, um, and I can't say it's really good because I haven't read it yet, so I don't know anything about it. There you go. I bet it's good because Keith's pretty awesome. He's a pretty awesome guy. So, um, there you go. The Hesed Factor. It's the second book he wrote. The first one was like three times as big. This one's a lot shorter. All right. We are in Romans 9 today. And if you have a Bible, it will probably grossly mislead you. How do you like that? How's that for a statement? Um... Remember, I mean, I don't know. I don't, want to, I don't want this to be the thing that I say all the time. But remember, all these chapter numbers were added later. And then even later than that, the verse numbers were added. And then even later than that, these little subtitles were added. So if you look at Romans 9, most of our Bibles say above Romans 9, God's sovereign choice. And they immediately frame Romans 9 into this controversy of God's choice and God's election and God's predestination, because that word is in here. And the idea of predestination, um, the, way we, the way we modernly, the, the current day, the way we think of it in current day, came up in the 1500s. And in the 1500s, the Protestant Reformation was in full force. And the, the Protestant Reformation had, had split the church so much into um, dividing over issues rather than trying to work through the issues that, so you've got the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church that now the Protestant church was splitting into because it was, they, they learned how to split, so they split, and then they just kept on splitting. Um, I talked to a Catholic guy one time, and, and he said that, that Protestantism is rooted in splitting off, and that's why the Protestant church just keeps splitting and splitting and splitting into more and more things. I thought that was kind of funny. He was a little tongue-in-cheek with it and a little serious. So, in the 1500s, so we're talking only in the last 500 years, Romans 9 was read from an angle of God picked in advance who would go to heaven and hell. And you don't have a choice. It's only in the last 500 years. The first 1500 years of the church, 
Romans 9 was read differently. Isn't that wild? And so we get this subtitle in here, God's Sovereign Choice, that comes from just the last 500 years, not the previous 1,500 years before that. So hold that all in your head, and let's start. Romans 9.1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Okay, wait, what's he talking about? you got to go backwards. Remember Romans 8, the end of Romans 8 was um, we are all, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us. Don't judge our, your circumstances and all the bad stuff that's happening to you. Don't judge God's love by all that hardship. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. That's the start of Romans 9. God loves you. Don't judge God's love by your circumstances. I'm speaking the truth. I'm not lying. I have a lot of sorrow in my heart, Paul says. I wish that I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Wow. He is saying all of these people that don't believe the whole Jewish nation, because what's he been? He's been talking about the Gentiles. He's been talking about righteousness from God, not from the law, not from the Jewish people. And now he's starting to get to the point where he's like, you know what? Everything I've said so far has been excluding the Jew, the Jews, and excluding the Jewish people. And I don't want you to think that I'm mad at them. Something like this happened in our house one time. You know, we're cheering for a basketball team. And we're cheering for the basketball team. And somebody, one of the kids said, I hope that other team just dies. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's just basketball. We don't even want the other team to lose. We just want our team to win. You know, sometimes people can get kind of carried away. Um, It's like Chewbacca. You want me to rip their arms off? No, 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 no. You know, calm down. Paul is having that calm down moment. Okay, look, I know I've been saying Jewish people, they are not going to get righteousness from the law. They're not going to get righteousness from following Moses' law. But, but, but that doesn't mean I want them all dead. I wish, I, I want the Jewish people saved so bad, I wish I could be lost and all of them be in, in Christ. That's what he's saying right there. Oh man, I mean, you just hear him, verse 4. He's saying, Oh man, the Jews, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and all of the promises of God. Like, these are the people that we really got to admire. They have been carrying, they carried the Old Testament to us for thousands of years. Sometimes I'll be around some young guys that are real cynical and bitter about church. And, but they're Christian guys and, and they love Jesus. They're just, oh, a bunch of do-gooders, oh, a bunch of hypocrites. I'm like, you guys, every one of us, everything we have right now, we have to thank all of the centuries and centuries of church people for. So let's not talk bad about generations before us of church people they got things a little bit off. Because they got us all here. We wouldn't even be here. And that's what he's saying about the Jews. They were adopted. They were God's chosen people. They had the covenant. 
They had the worship. They had the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is Jesus Christ, who is God over all and blessed forever. So if you talk bad about the Jews, you are talking bad about Jesus. Because Jesus was a Jew. So now Paul is pulling the big break on all of this all this talk that he's had so far. He's trying to reconcile. Okay, look, even though I said the law is, is not going to you, get you there, works of the law won't save you, I'm not saying that we're against the Jewish people. Everything Abraham did wasn't a big fat waste. It's, it's good. But what about the Jewish people? Because now he can't swing the pendulum too far. So he goes on to verse 6. It's not as though the word of God failed. It's not as though God gave the Jewish people his word and then God's word failed. Not all, and then he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all the children of Abraham, because they're his offspring. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as the children of God. So now he's going back to Isaac. Isaac was born. um, Ishmael was about maybe 16 or 17 years older than Isaac. And he retells the story of God coming and saying, God, uh, Abraham, next year I'm going to come back and I'm going to visit you. And your wife Sarah is going to be pregnant with the child. She's going to have a baby. Even though she is so far past childbearing years, you are so old, it's going to be a miracle. 17 years ago with Ishmael, that wasn't a miracle. That wasn't, and you even did that on your own. with You got your handmaid and the servant and all that business. This is going to be a miracle. This is going to be from God, not from man. He brings all that up to say, just like the righteousness that's from God is now here, it's not a righteousness from man. It's not a righteousness of Ishmael where God makes a promise to Abraham and then Abraham has to figure out how he's going to pull it off. Hmm, God made this promise. I can't have kids with Sarah. She's too old. Sarah says, here, take Hagar and sleep with her and have children with her and whatever children she has will be my children which didn't work out anyway so Abraham gets this promise and then he works it out himself that's the righteousness that comes by works then God shows up and says I'm going to give you a son that's a complete miracle and it's all my work and that's Isaac that's the child of the promise so he's saying Everybody who receives the righteousness from God, it's a miracle of God, God's mercy, is a child of Isaac. Child of Abraham through Isaac, right? That's, that's what all of this, this comparison is. Then they go down. This time next year, let's see, uh, verse 10. Also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, 
right? But because of God who calls, she was told. So Rebecca is pregnant. She has twins. And she is told the older son is going to be a servant of the younger son. That is crazy. That is so culturally off. Culturally speaking, um, the firstborn son is going to be the head of the house right below dad. The firstborn son is going to be boss over all the siblings. And even while she has two babies in her womb, they tell her the younger kid in there is going to be the head of the family, the head of the house. He's going to be the boss. And then, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, if you think through, okay, so this is all about God's sovereign choice, picking who he's going to love and who he's going to hate, right? It's not about that at all. What Paul's trying to say through all this is an answer to what the Jewish people thought at the time. They thought two things. They thought, if I am born in the family of Abraham, I am God's chosen people, and I am righteous. I have righteousness through my grandpa, Abraham. The other thing they thought is that by works of the law, I'm righteous. If I do the right things, I'm righteous, and God loves me. And right here, Paul brings up an example. Oh, you think... Because you're grandson of Abraham, you're loved? God hated Esau. Don't think that you're loved just because of who your grandpa is. Because Esau was hated. This is immediately going to throw them off. That's the whole goal here. It's not about um, Esau never had a choice to be saved or not. The, the, the example is given to say, don't think just because you're born of this family, you're loved. The other thing he says is it's not by man's desire or effort. It's not by his works. It's not by Abraham's works that he had Isaac. It's by the miracle of God, the mercy of God. So, they thought that God, they were God's chosen race. They thought that God accepted them because of their works of the law. And this is the opposite of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if you're going to rely on who you're born into, what family you're born into, you could be just like Esau. It's not going to do you any good what family you're born into. If you're going to rely on the works of the law, later on he talks about uh, Moses. And he kind of brings up, you know, when Moses was getting the law, everybody was worshiping a golden calf. All of your ancestors, all of your ancestors, all your great-great-great-great-grandpas were worshiping a golden calf while Moses was getting the law. So don't trust in obeying the law because you already all messed that up. When God said... Um, Whoever sins against me, I will punish them for a thousand generations. God gives Moses that law, and they're down at the bottom of the hill sinning against God, building up those thousand generations, right? Pretty awful. All of that is Paul saying, don't try to be God. Don't try to squeeze God into a formula 
that, okay, God, if I am born into this family, I have to be, I'm a chosen person, and you have to save me. Don't try to squeeze God into a formula where you can say, okay, God, I obeyed all these laws. You have to bless me. You have to do this. This is actually that idea of if I do this, then God has to that. That's where they got off course with their law. They, they got the law and the law was given. We, we talked about this earlier in Romans to take them to God, to, like a schoolmaster that took you to school, but it didn't actually teach you anything. Just like the yellow line on the pavement, yellow line on the pavement in the middle of the road doesn't keep me from running into oncoming traffic. It's just going to tell me I was wrong when I do. It's not going to teach me how to drive. So that's the law. So Paul's trying to say, don't think that following the law is going to do it. Don't think the way they think in Islam, where if you have this many good deeds and this many bad deeds, God will accept you. Don't think the way they think in even in Christianity. If I did these bad things, I just need to donate more money and make it right with God and make up for the bad that I've done so God will like me. That's the law. That's terrible. That doesn't depend on mercy. What, what did it just say? Um, it doesn't depend on God's des- uh, man's desire or effort, but it depends on God's mercy. It's all about God's mercy. So, you get a little uneasy when we talk about how Esau was hated by God before he was even born, right? Makes you a little nervous. How's that work? What's that scenario? What's that scenario do? And we really want to start to form some ideas about man, God must decide in advance who he likes and who he hates. And you start to do that. But guess what? Uh Uh-oh. Keep reading. What shall we say then? This is in verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? Like, that's what we're thinking, right? That wasn't very fair for Esau. That's kind of injustice. Was there injustice on God's part? By no means. No. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Notice he didn't say in there, I will judge the people I want to judge, and I will condemn and burn in hell everybody that I want to condemn and burn in hell. He says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. There's a difference. So then, it depends on not human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up so that I may show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Uh, I was reading one commentary on this and the guy had a really interesting thing. He said that God in, in the Exodus and all the plagues If God could turn the whole Nile River into blood and make frogs come out of nowhere and make it rain fire and make all the livestock come down with the sickness, couldn't he have just killed Pharaoh? Like plague number one, 
Pharaoh, boom, gone. All right, now you all get to go out. Isn't that wild? Even that, Pharaoh could have died of natural causes. Pharaoh could have, could have had a heart attack after the third plague just of, from, from the stress and anguish of it. He could have um, slipped on a frog in his, in his latrine and cracked his head open and died. He could have died in all those things. What if God raised Pharaoh up for this purpose? What if God raised Pharaoh, the, the guy who Pharaoh, I mean, he was a real person. He had a personality. What if God raised that man up to that place in authority because he knew how he would react to Moses? Because this is the same thing that we say about Pilate around Easter time. God didn't make Pilate make his decision, but God could see into Pilate's heart and know that he would not stand up to the Jewish people and that he would give in to them and kill the Messiah. And that was part of God's plan. So what if God worked in Pilate's life to get Pilate up to that position because he knew what kind of character Pilate had? What kind of person Pilate was. But at the same time, cried out to Pilate and gave Pilate a chance to turn, a chance to repent, a chance to say, you know what, you are the truth, Jesus. Instead, Pilate says, hey, who knows what the truth is? Flogging. It's the same with Pharaoh. As you read through Exodus and the plagues of Pharaoh, there's a lot of times where people, God is giving Pharaoh a chance to turn, a chance to change. All, there's one point, all of Pharaoh's advisors come and they're like, look, get him out of here. Let Moses go. You're going to destroy Egypt. And Pharaoh doesn't listen. So what if God raised Pharaoh up just to show off how mighty and powerful he was. For this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Whoa. God does it. And we don't know why. And we really don't. And it's kind of arrogant It's kind of arrogant for us to try to figure it out. And that's what he says next. Will you say to me then, why does God find fault? Why does God send anybody to hell? Who can resist His will? Paul says, who are you to answer back to God? Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? What if God, skip down to verse 22, what if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Basically, what he's saying is, who are you to ask God why He's doing this? Because think that through for a minute. If I ask God, who is God, why are you doing this? Then I'm demanding that God submit to me and give me an account of his actions. That's pretty scary. This is kind of book of Job kind of stuff. Because the book of Job, 
These guys are asking these questions. And, and Job is saying, why did God do this? God, why have you done that? Why have you done this? And God shows up. And God says, all right, Job, you brace yourself like a man. Because now I'm going to ask the questions. And you're going to answer me. Uh, there's this incredible scene at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia where the wicked evil man suddenly sees the spiritual power of evil that he's been serving. You know what I'm saying? This is like Last Judgment Day kind of thing. And he sees this terrible, wicked uh, symbol of Satan. And he, who is the oppressor and the, the, the ruler and the oh, just this wicked, powerful, evil man is brought to absolute fear and terror. And then he's carried off and it's, it's gruesome and awful. We think we can ask God questions. God, why this? Why that? And God is big enough and compassionate enough that if you ask that with the right heart, He will take it and He will help you and He will assist you. But when we ask it in rebellion and we ask it in, in arrogance. So one time, this was in uh, seventh grade. I was a good kid in grade school. Like, I'm not making a joke. I really was. I followed all the rules. Um, one time I almost launched a rocket into the side of the building. That was an accident. All the teachers, nobody, nobody got me in trouble for it. You know, they all understood. I never talked back to anybody. I mean, like five years of Catholic school prepared me to be a really good public school kid. Okay. And I still remember distinctly, we were in gym class and the gym teacher He's this young, cool guy, and he was just friends with all the people, you know, and uh, you know, like, like a brand new teacher. You know how the new teachers are all real cool to all the kids. And he told us to do some push-up thing or something. And he was just wearing us out. And I remember I was right in the front row, and, uh, and I did this, and he's like, oh, now, okay, now do this. I said, I'd like to see you do this. Just total pop-off at him. And he just got right up and he said, I'd like to see you shut your mouth. And I never saw him mad like that. I never saw him like, boom, come back at me. Man, I felt so bad. I just, I was like, oh. I didn't feel bad that I smarted off to him. I felt bad that I brought that out of him. You know what I, does that make sense? I felt bad that I pushed this really cool gym teacher that we all loved to have a little wrath. And, uh, and boy, I did it. I, I shut my mouth and did whatever the exercise was. That little bit of rebellion and that little bit, that gives me a little hint of the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. Don't talk back. You, you might have seen on the news there, uh, these riots after the election there's this guy that's yelling at a truck with a fire hose on the top. And this guy is like 300, 350 pounds, huge dude. And he walks up to this fire truck and he's just yelling at him. Blah, 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 blah. And they turn that fire hose on him. And he just like bobs away. 
we don't, we are so arrogant. We are so, like, we're so full of ourselves. And we read, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and we're like, God, explain that to me. You've got some explaining to do. If God showed up and explained it to us, I don't think we could handle it. I think God really, really, really loves us and He desires for us to understand things. But I think when we show up with the attitude of you've got some explaining to do, He's going to blow us away. And that's what all of this section is. Should the pot say to the potter, why did you make me like this? That would be absolutely ridiculous, right? If, if I lit that candle and that candle talked back to me and argued with me about how I'm lighting it, we'd be done with that candle. God loves us too much. He loves us so much He gave His Son to die on the cross for our sins. So when we ask, God, what does this mean? He's not going to and be done with this. But at the same time, he doesn't have to answer. He doesn't have to answer. There's a time I was walking down the street and I was thinking about angels and demons. I was like, Lord, let me see. Let me just see what's going on in the spiritual world. Let me just see angels and demons. And Is this a battle? What all is going on? I felt like the Lord said, you cannot handle it, dude. Don't ask for stuff that you can't handle. I'm just going to let you be. And then I was like, oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for the ignorance I get to walk in. Thank you for the things I don't get to know. And the things that I don't get to understand. So this whole section, all of Romans 9, all sums up in the end to this great, great, great thing that if we can get away from questioning God about Jacob and Esau, we can get away from um, God, do you predestine people or do we have a choice to be saved? Get to the end. Verse 25. As indeed He says in Hosea, those who are not My people, I will call My people. And to her was not my beloved, I will call my beloved. He's talking about Gentiles. This whole section. If it, if it wasn't for... If, if, any, if the only people that could be saved had to be born of Abraham, then we're all lost. I mean, every, I don't know about you guys, maybe. But all of us Irishmen are lost. Because we didn't descend from Abraham. But he's saying it holds. I'm going to call people that were called not my people, my people. I'm going to call people that were not my beloved, my beloved. The very place that it says you're not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out about this. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. That it's not about what country you live in. It's not about who you descended from. Skip all the way down to the end. Verse 31. Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. 
But as, as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, I'm laying a stone in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God has put this thing in clear view. You know how when you see it and you know it's there and it's pointed out to you, you step over it and you don't stumble on it? God put faith, righteousness through faith that comes from God right out in the open. Jesus came and taught on it and spoke about it and pointed to himself and pointed to the Father. And that everybody that sees it for what it is will be saved. And what he's saying is there's a whole lot of people. Is uh, It's like this guy on the news. The, the the guy was walking down the street on his phone and he was looking at his phone and the news helicopter was viewing a bear loose in the city and they were telling people to stay in their in their offices and stay in their office buildings and this guy's walking down the street on his phone and he comes around the corner and there's a bear. <laughs> it was in plain view. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was saying, there's a bear. And he didn't see it. That's what this stumbling stone is. God says, look, I am putting right in front of you a rock. I'm putting right in front of you this stone. This is Jesus Christ. This is righteousness that comes from God. And if you don't see it, it's so obvious you're going to trip over it and you're going to fall. Because it's, it's not not there because you don't see it. It's still there, whether you see it or not. That's what the whole, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. So this whole chapter, same thing about Romans 1 through 8. It's not by man's desire or effort. It's by God's mercy. Every one of us deserves condemnation. Every one of us deserves destruction. But God, in His mercy, shows mercy and compassion. It'll say later in Romans that He's had mercy on us all. And 1 Peter will say that God doesn't want anybody to perish, but He wants everybody to come to eternal life. So He opens the door for all of us. As long as we're humble and, and we, we willingly make Him the Lord and don't, don't demand that He serve us. Let's pray. Lord, we see you and we pay attention to you. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a righteousness that is by faith, a righteousness that is from, from you and not by our works and not by what ancestry we came from, but just by believing that you are who you say you are. I pray that you would work this joy and work this humility in us I pray that you would help your church, Lord, globally, because there's a lot of people caught up, caught up in trying to figure out if you predestined people or not, and uh, and we don't want to be we don't want to be that proud to to make you listen to us, Lord. We want to listen to you. Have mercy on your church. Have mercy on your people, and grow us as we walk and believe in you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.
This week, may you grow in the humility and submission of the glory of the fiery, amazing God that loves you so much. God bless you this week.